Um, on many Sundays, uh, Don is uh, in churches like ours speaking and talking about uh, our ministry together. And on the Sundays that he's not, he's out roaming about seeing what he can learn about uh, churches in the Northwest. And uh, looking forward to having you share with us, brother. Thank you, Dave. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I, I enjoy a missions conference. I enjoy hearing what God is doing. For me, this is a special morning um, to meet Chris, who's going to go work with my friend Rich Brown. Rich and I were in seminary together in the previous century. And um, to hear how God has worked in his life is a blessing to me. I spent last night with a friend of mine in Arlington, Frank, who was in seminary with Rich and myself. And we spent the evening sharing and chatting, and this morning chatting some more, and that's why I didn't arrive any earlier than I did. Um, I was impressed talking with Frank as to how God works in ways that we wouldn't have planned or even hoped. Um, when Rich was in seminary, Rich Brown in Spain, it seemed obvious that God had his hand in Rich's life and was going to do great things. My friend Frank was the same kind of a guy. I mean, this guy went to seminary and worked full-time in Seattle washing dishes on a midnight shift. He'd get off at 6, be in class at 7, did it for three years because he loved Jesus. That's why he was sacrificing that kind of a life. And I thought, well, God's going to take that heart and use that man and accomplish something really amazing. His burden was for the country of Colombia in South America. Finished seminary. Made a friendship with a woman who'd had a previous marriage. Um, made a choice that he would marry her and let go of his desire to go to Columbia. The marriage lasted six weeks. And then she divorced him. Um, and he thought his life was ruined. That all the preparation, all the sacrifice he'd made was for nothing. And that was 30 years ago. And God has worked in his heart and his life since then. And Blessed him and used him. He's, he's a high school teacher now and touches hundreds of students' lives. And God, God is at work. He surprises us sometimes. Works even when we sin, even when we fail. God's still good. And So I, I come here this morning, and, and that's where I've been with Frank, and, and I hear about Rich, and, and I'm reminded of how God's at work. Um, and I come to a missionary conference, and I, I feel like an old missionary again. And uh, I really miss Australia. It, I mean, I'm, I'm not dissing you guys, but I, I like Australia a lot. And um, missionaries get together, and sometimes we, we compare notes and talk about things. And I'm, I'm warning Chris, and the rest of you can just listen in. But um, we look for the, the secret, the key, and the way that, to be successful, because very few of us strive to fail. And so we'll talk about, you know, what are you doing that's effective? What technique have you learned that works in this culture? And there's, there's those kinds of things. You, you don't do some things because they're ineffective, and you avoid those things. And you choose to do some things that are more effective, but it's not about technique. We talk about programs, and, and everybody likes to put together a program and, and say, well, if you'll just do these things in this order and hold your mouth a certain way, it'll work, and, and people will respond, and, and it's not about a program. Programs can be helpful. They can give us some structure. 
But it isn't about technique and it isn't about program. It's about one person sharing the good news with another person. You know that. That's what missions is all about. It's individuals reaching individuals. One of the things that I talked to Pastor Gopi about, and he models so well, is his people minister. He ministers, but so does every other person in his church. There's probably 20 people in the worship team, and they're all serving Christ that morning. And other people bring things for the morning tea. You don't call it morning tea, do you? Is it a coffee? Whatever you do with coffee and tea and stuff. And they serve Christ that way, and they invite their friends, and they invite people that don't know Jesus yet to come and hear the gospel and come to Christ. And, and that's how it's supposed to work. I will not stand before you this morning and talk to you about techniques. I won't talk to you about a program that I've heard about that is pretty effective in the Northwest, because I don't think those are the most important things we can think about together for the next few minutes. I want to talk to you about what we do individually, one-on-one, person-to-person, heart-to-heart. As we relate to our friends, to our neighbors, to our families, to the guys we work with, to the clerk in the shop, as we share Christ as a believer. Let me warn you about some things. We can, we can get it wrong. For whatever reason, sometimes when we want to reach out, we get all excited. We say, well, I think I'll talk to a person who is, and I, this doesn't sound right, but a person who doesn't scare me, a person who I can reach down to. And, and we do that. And we, we say, well, the, I, I couldn't share Christ with this really smart guy because he's smarter than I am. And, and this other person is you know, different than me. And well, I can, I can talk to that guy. I mean, he's nobody. You think, well, you won't say it out loud, but sometimes it's in our thoughts. And, and I see it sometimes in the New Testament as well. Not given as a good example, but as a bad example to warn us. If you look with me in the Gospel of John, in the ninth chapter of John, there's a story about a man who was born blind. A story about the disciples, a story about Jesus, a story about those who opposed the Gospel, a story about how God works in hearts and how God works in lives. We always have questions about why this, why that, how's God working, what can God do with this? So in John 9, verse 1, we read, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The story goes on, a story that you know. Powerful story about Jesus working in a life one-on-one to touch a man's heart and to draw that man to salvation. You read the text, and we can miss the point and conclude that God allowed a man to live his adult life in blindness because God needed an object lesson. You say, wow, that's, that's not my God. Not, not that He would use people that way. And the disciples come by, and they talk about this man. 
None of the disciples addressed him. Nobody said, G'day, how you going? Nobody asked him, how's it going this morning as he's sitting there begging for his living? Nobody looked in his can and said, hey, pretty good day, huh? They, they treated him like he wasn't a person. He's an object lesson of God. He's something for us to debate and to discuss and to consider as though he wasn't a man with feelings. A man with pride. A man that wanted to be a man. And a man who needed Jesus. So they, they talked to him. They talked about him. They never communicate their respect for him as to what it's like to be a man who's blind and what it's like to be a person who struggles. Everybody in this room struggles. I don't care what your struggle is. All of us have to work at it. They communicated so well that they were superior and he was inferior. They could have listed for you how they were superior. They had both eyes. They had ears that worked. They could walk and get there on their own two feet. They had been with Jesus. They had learned things. They knew things. They'd experienced things that not many people had. So they were the upper crust. And this man, what did he know? What had he seen of this life? He's done nothing. He's a nobody. He's insignificant. Who would miss him if he were gone? He just sits at a corner and begs. And if we allow that mindset that our culture would give us, that there are people who are better and people who are not so good, and that some people can become our projects, and we do things for them for us. There's a certain good feeling that comes when you drop a coin in the beggar's can. You say, well, I did that for him. He needed my coin. And I can live without that 25 cents, and I hope that it's really good for him now. We approach people for Christ that same way. We say, well, I've found the Savior. My eternal destiny is settled. When I leave this life, I will be in heaven. I know it. And I have friends and I have acquaintances that don't know Christ. And I could, you know, rear back a little bit and stand a little bit taller and say, I've got it. They need it. I'm going to give it to them. And that isn't how we share Christ. Not to reach down. Not to give a little bit out of our abundance to them. But because we have found what is so important and what is so true and what you can't live without, that we would reach across and say, my brother, let me, let me tell you the truth about how this life works and how the next life works. We're talking about church plants. I worked in the church in, in Wollongong during its 24th year and helped them to graduate as a church plant. I worked in the church at Tumbiami during its 17th year, helped them to graduate as a church plant. I worked in a church at Port Stevens for three and a half years and saw them graduate as a church plant. Not because I learned a better technique, because God blessed. In Port Stevens, somebody shared Christ with Mick, a heroin user for 40 years, in prison, out of prison. Mick was the most wicked man I've ever met. Honestly, he had done it all. 
All of it. And we'd sit and we'd talk a little bit. He said, oh, Pastor, I, I don't want to talk about that. That was before I found Christ. That was when I was lost, when I was an enemy of God. And Mick's life was severely damaged by the 40 years that he'd used heroin. It just There's a lot of scars that come with that, a lot of baggage. But Mick was genuinely born again. The person who shared Christ with Mick did not reach down. That same person also had an addiction. And they were trying to work with people who had addictions. And they talked to Mick, and, and Mick was so ready to tell them to take a hike. He'd had counselors. He'd had people try and rescue him and save him. And he'd had all of that he needed. This guy said, oh, I'm not there. He says, I struggle too with an addiction. But I have found Christ, and it's better than my addiction. And Mick said, better than heroin? He said, Christ is my Savior. Mick said, tell me more. And he came to Christ. Changed some things. Left the heroin. And God used Mick. He was also a a person who had hepatitis C. And it, it killed him. But God used Mick as he was, who he was, as a redeemed person. His hep C put him in the hospital every month, month and a half. And I was in the hospital visiting him, and he's, he was in the, the ward for drug addicts because the hep C was a condition that they had. He said, Pastor, can you come back on Thursday? They're going to release me from the hospital Thursday. It was about an hour's drive from home. And he said, um, I'd like you to come about 9, 9.30 if you can. I said, sure, no problem. Came back on Thursday and, and got there about 9 and came in. And he said, well, Pastor, they're not going to release me until after lunch. You understand why. Uh, the hospital gets paid for each patient by, from the government, and if he stays past lunch, it's a whole day. So nobody gets out for noon. And he, and he said, I've been in the ward now a couple of weeks, and I've been talking with people about Christ, and I've put together a bit of a roster, and if you'll go down to the smoking room, um, they'll be coming by. And he organized the whole ward. And I sat down in the smoking room, and this person walks in, and they said, Mick sent me. Okay, I said. And Mick said something about Jesus, and he said, you knew about Jesus, and tell me, tell me the rest of the story about Jesus. And I'd shared the gospel with the person, and they said, well, there's someone else waiting, and the entire ward filed through the smoking room. And I don't know what the smokers did, because I had the smoking room. And Mick set him up to talk with me about the Savior. Mick wasn't reaching down, reaching straight across one addict to another, one person who struggled with life, one person who knew what it was to be damaged by sin, telling somebody else, hey, there's a way out of this. And it's not a better drug, and it's not a better treatment, it's not a better hospital, it's not a better doctor. It's what the Savior can do for you, Jesus Christ. So I talk about that. And I want to encourage you to take a second. Be a little introspective. Do you feel superior? You better than Mick, a 40-year heroin addict who sinned. Are you less than somebody else? Do you understand that what we have in Christ is what every person needs? And they need to hear it in such a way 
that their heart remains open. Not closed by our arrogance and our pride. Not put off by our feelings of inferiority and guilt and shame. But as we talk about who our Savior is, we draw them. I'd encourage you to share Christ from your heart. Share it openly. Share it honestly. Share who you are. If you've had this struggle and that struggle and you've been scarred by sin in this way, that's okay. Let God use you and the person that you are. So, well, maybe I don't reach down a lot when I share Christ. Uh, maybe it's easier for me to deal with the, the nicer people. If you look at me in the Gospel of Luke, in verse 18, or chapter 18. In Luke 18, verse 18, we read, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. One of the things that's true of all of us is that we're children of Adam. And that's a package deal. Things come with that. One of the things is that we're made to compete. We keep track of who's in front of us and who's behind us and who's ahead of us. And we keep score in life. We say, well, I'm winning. I'm not winning today. I'm struggling today. I'm failing today. And the text does not say how they knew this man was rich. It was obvious to them. He had that appearance of wealth. Whatever that was in their culture, we can describe it for our culture. But this guy pulled up in his Cadillac Escalade and got out wearing his fancy stuff, and they said, whoa, rich dude. And they wondered about how in the world can a person who is richer than I am recognize their need for the Savior? Do you catch the reasoning in that? That somehow someone who's better off than I am, who's prettier than I am, who's taller than I am, who's some way superior to me, wouldn't have a need. Wouldn't have a need for the Savior. And, and the guy comes to Jesus and asks his question. He asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the disciples wouldn't have been surprised if Jesus said, oh, let me share with you the version of the gospel that's for the mega rich. I mean, we have the version for the poor and the blind. They come to Christ this way. But for you guys who have a little that going for you, we have a different way of understanding salvation. We almost think that way, that there's those who don't have a need that's as great. And here's a guy who comes in and says, I got money, but an empty heart. I know how to make life work and how to win at the game and how to be successful, but when I'm alone at night and I can't sleep, there's something in my life that's missing.
And Jesus shared with him the gospel. Did you catch how he shared it? Didn't put the guy down, didn't say, well, you rich guys. None of that. He said, how's your life? Where do you stand with God? Talked about sin. Falling short of the glory of God, like Romans mentions. And if you read that list about don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, that isn't all of the Ten Commandments, but that's enough to convict anyone of sin. We fail. And he approached that rich man and said, so you got stuff. How's your life? How's your heart? How do you know God? Do you try and drown out the voice of God in your life? Do you avoid God working in your life? Do you want to hear about God or do you not want to know any more about God? He says, do you understand that you've got a problem? Do you understand that you have sinned? Do you understand there's nothing you can do, no price you can pay, no way that you can solve your own sin problem? And you ask all that like Jesus would ask it in a way that cuts immediately to the chase. It's right to the point. And the man said, wow, it's going to be hard for me. The man had things. The man was proud. The man was self-sufficient and successful. He wasn't acutely aware of his needs. Just that emptiness. Jesus said, you must come. The church that I grew up in, in Illinois, when I was a young man in church, was mostly farmers. Just a country church with farmers in it. And I'm talking to some guys that maybe you have an ag background, maybe you don't, but I just told you about my, my culture. And it's unique and it's special and it's right. And they relate in a certain way. Farmers will come in and it, in the, in the vestibule before you enter the service, you have to talk about your rain gauge. How much rain did you receive? Did you get a good rain, a bad rain? And we talk about that, and we talk about the temperature, and we talk about the markets, and we talk about farming stuff. This time of year, they'll be coming into church if they can get off the combine, and they'll be talking about how much more do you have to harvest? That's a trick question. You know that. So you ask him when he comes in, he says, how you doing? How much more do you have to go? And he'll say, well, you know, I've done 400 acres of beans and I've got 400 more to go. And I've started a shell and corn, but I've got about 1,200 more acres to go. And, and then you can say, well, big shot. Successful. Working hard, feeling tired, doing it tough, but got it going on. And... In my home church, we had our farmers, and they all got together. And back when I was in high school, one of the guys that I admired as a really good farmer was Ralph. And Ralph was a Lutheran. And Ralph had five really pretty daughters, and I was aware of that. And one was a year older, one was a year younger. It's just about, just about right. And we didn't assume that Ralph needed Christ. 
He had a good farm and a good family, and what more could you ask for? My pastor back then, Pastor Bob, got a phone call from Ralph. One day out of the blue. Ralph said, you don't know me, I'm, I'm part of the Lutheran church, but there's something missing. I need to talk. Came into the Baptist church and talked with the Baptist pastor in the Baptist pastor's church office. How desperate is that in a small town where everybody knows whose car's parked where at all times? Ralph came to talk to Bob about his need. Bob shared the gospel with Ralph. Ralph said, I, I think I understand. Can you come by the house and tell me again and tell me in front of my wife, Peggy, because she needs the same stuff. Here's this guy who's successful, who's got it happening. And Pastor Bob went to Ralph and Peggy's house, sat down at their kitchen table, explained the gospel to them. And Bob said, I'll never forget, we're reading in, in their Bibles, and Ralph read Romans 10, 13. He said, does that what it re- really mean? Bob said, yeah, that's what it means. And Ralph said, can I do that now? He said, yeah. He said, I want Christ as my Savior now. And turned to his wife, Peggy, said, Peggy, how about you? She said, me too. And here's two people that didn't look like they needed anything in life. And they came to Christ. Lots of pressure. They farmed in partnership with his brother who remained a Lutheran. All their roots were in the Lutheran church in our little town. People had their roots, deep roots. And Ralph stood for Christ and said, I'm, I'm different now. They said, oh, you became a Baptist? He said, no, I, actually I became a Christian. And I found Christ in the, in the Baptist church. And if you'd like to talk to Pastor Bob, he's a good guy to talk to. And it went further than that. As Ralph lived it out, Romans 10.13 became his verse. He talked to you about Romans 10.13. Ralph's sister committed suicide three or four years later. Ralph brought his pastor in and said, there's been a problem in my family and we need help. And Ralph's nephew, that sister's oldest son, Owen, was there. Freshman in college. Just lost his mom to suicide. Totally, totally confused. And Ralph said, Pastor, tell him, Romans 10, 13. He needs it now. And Owen came to Christ. He became my best friend. And all because somebody who was well off and successful followed that emptiness in their heart all the way to the truth and all the way to the gospel. And Pastor Bob, my pastor, he didn't care if you were rich or poor. He cared if you were lost or you were saved. So if you get a chance to talk to somebody who's driving a BMW, go ahead. Same heart, same need, same sin, same problem, same solution. It doesn't matter how confident they pretend to be, how successful they look to us. Without the Savior, you got nothing. Nothing that matters for eternity. Nothing that matters when you're all alone. Nothing that matters when the wheels fall off in your life and you know you need help. That's when you need a Savior. I don't care if you're rich or if you're poor. If you're very educated, very intelligent, whatever it is you're successful at, same Savior, same need, same solution. (coughs) 
I went to seminary for three years. I learned something. Probably the most important thing I learned. Maybe not, but I learned about paradigms. A paradigm is not 20 cents. A paradigm is kind of an example of how it's supposed to work. In Philippians 16, we have a paradigm about how the gospel goes forth and reaches people. Not reaching down to the lowest ones, not being afraid to reach up to the highest ones, but how the gospel invades a community, how the gospel invades a culture, how a church gets established. So in Acts, the 16th chapter, if you look with me there. I want to begin reading in verse 9. In some respects, I'm preaching to the choir. I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and you know where that is. I ask you to turn to Acts 16, and you know what's in Acts 16. I want to remind you of what you know and help us to apply and understand what we know and help us to live as we ought to live because of what we know. So I open the Bible to Acts 16. I turn to the ninth verse, and it talks about a Macedonian call. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia including that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The story goes on. They arrive in the city of Philippi, main city in Macedonia, and they do what is pretty normal and pretty natural. Paul was Jewish. For him, it felt right to worship on a Saturday. Had been for years in his whole life. And it also gave him the chance to rub shoulders with Jewish people on a Saturday, and talk about the Messiah who had come, the Savior that God had given for us. Philippi was so secular and so godless, there weren't enough Jewish men in that entire city to make a synagogue. So they didn't have a synagogue. But it's Saturday, and Jewish people worship on Saturday, so they gathered in the park. Everybody would have known that that was the Jewish people in the park. Reading from a Hebrew Bible, maybe even praying in Hebrew, doing things that seemed strange to a person who wasn't Jewish. And Paul and his team walked up to them. I want to say with a certain swagger, and that may be the wrong term, a certain settled conviction that God set this meeting up. We're supposed to be here. God told us to come to this place at this time. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing for the glory of God. So there's no need to be timid or afraid or a little bit shy. They were there to serve God. As Jewish people, they're welcomed into the Jewish prayer meeting that's taking place there in the park in Philippi. Conversation turns... They get to talk about Jesus who was crucified. The Savior who died for sin. My sin, your sin, all of our sin. And as you would expect, 
If God puts you in a certain place at a certain time with a certain message, he probably wanted to use it for a certain purpose. And Lydia responded, came to Christ, said immediately, I want to live as a Christian now. I want the world to know. I want to get baptized. And I want to leave this park setting. I want to open my home and share my resources with you for the gospel. I can stop right there. You can say, well, that's a pretty good example, pretty good program, pretty good technique for how to share Christ in a new community. Move in with the conviction that God wants me here. Meet some people who are open to talking about what I want to talk about, whether it's in Starbucks or McDonald's. Share the good news with them. Wait for the Spirit of God to work in their hearts. Draw them to Christ and establish a church. Sounds like a good plan. I would think that Lydia would have been the kind of person that I'd like. As a person who did business, she would have known good manners, how to be nice, would have been able to talk with me and treat me with respect, and I appreciate that. And I could just imagine, boy, this church is going to take off with Lydia behind it, with her resources, with her reputation. People are going to be drawn to this church, and it's going to be something. So all you got to do then with this technique is move to a community and find the key person. Probably isn't Mick. Might look like Ralph. Did look like Lydia. We say, well, a key person looks just like this. This is, this is who God is sending me to reach. Nice people, attractive people, rich people, generous people, kind people. That's my kind of person. Drawn to them. And God worked. And the church began to grow and people began to talk and the word got around. If you read the text carefully, in a matter of weeks, a problem developed. Can I give you a little theological perspective about this? They were in Philippi because God said, be there. They were doing the will of God. And God allowed Paul and Silas to be arrested, to be beaten, to be imprisoned, to be placed in stocks. Was that the will of God? That's for them, not for me, thanks. But that's what God was doing. First they saw success, and then they saw what looked like complete failure. Who do you share the gospel with when you're in stocks and when you're in prison? You say, well, duh. You have a captive audience. Why did they sing at night? Because in prison it got quiet. And their captive audience could only put their fingers in their ears. And they're singing the gospel, singing about the gospel, and creating opportunities to share the gospel as they sing with their feet in stocks, as they respond in an unusual way to life. And our friends, our neighbors, watch that. We all have problems, struggles, tragedies. Whether it's a diagnosis of cancer, child, whatever we work with, we, we live life in front of other people and they watch. And these prisoners had never seen two guys sing with their feet in stocks. It didn't happen that way. That's not how you respond to life. You know, the story goes on, and 
God shook that prison with an earthquake and opened the doors of that prison with an earthquake. Amazing story that God was at work in their midst. Can I pause for a second there? Simple question. Is God at work in your midst? The answer is yes. Maybe he's not shaking things with an earthquake. Maybe he's not getting us arrested and beaten and thrown in prison and in stocks. But God is at work. I challenge you. Look for where God is at work. And let God use that for his glory. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident that slipped past God and landed on our desk. It's what God has for us at this time. I ask you again, is God at work in your midst? You say, well, I guess he is. It seems like he is. We talk about reaching up and reaching down. How do you reach further down than the jailer of a city prison? Hard, crusty guy. Not the kind of guy you'd think would even be aware of his need of a Savior. He's seen it all, done it all. Nothing shocks him or surprises him except an earthquake that opens prison doors. Except two guys that sing when they should be crying, should be complaining, should be whining, should be bitter and angry at the injustice they've experienced. He says, something's not right with this picture. Tell me what in the world do you know that I don't know? And they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need a Savior because of sin. I worked in Australia 20 years, and the last five years we were there, I had the privilege of beginning a ministry in East Timor and working in cooperation with the missionaries from the Philippines and Australian believers from my churches. There's fun stuff. When we surveyed East Timor, we, ne- we did not meet a single Timorese believer in 1999. The gospel had not been to that place. An entire country, no churches, no gospel, no believers. Last time I was there in 2007, I worshiped with about 200 Timorese believers. The gospel invaded that place. It's kind of fun to stand back now and say, oh, that was fantastic, that was fun, and their churches are multiplying, it's going forward. There was a price to be paid for that. My friend Ferdy and his wife Jeannie came from the Philippines, moved to East Timor. Ferdy has kind of a large view of things. He arrived in the year 2000. Another missionary had arrived a year ahead of him, and they said, we're working in the capital city, Dili. It's our turf. It's our place. There's no room for you to be poaching on our work. You can't serve Christ in the capital city. Go. Find someplace else. We own this. A real godly approach. And so he said, well, I'll go down the road about two hours to a regional center and see what God does there. So he and his wife moved to this place, rented a house that had been destroyed in the, in the, the conflict with Indonesia, began to pay the man rent every month and got moved in, settled in. About two months later, another guy shows up and says, why are you living in my house? He said, no, no, I'm renting the house of this man. He says, that guy doesn't own the house. This is my house. Is that, that kind of a place where... Things were a little dishonest some days. It was his goal to share Christ. 
So he would go to the marketplace, had some gospel tracts printed up. He'd share the gospel tracts. If you've been there and done that, you pass out 100 tracts, and you step back and you look, and there's 48 of them on the ground over here, and 51 of them on the ground over here. You say, wow, that's pretty effective. At least they're going that far before they throw them away. And he was seeing that it wasn't that effective. And he and his wife began church services because they wanted people to come and hear the gospel. And there were U.N. soldiers stationed in that town. And the U.N. soldiers came. And he said, oh, it was terrible. You know why it's terrible. He says, I didn't want to get labeled as a U.N. church. I wanted to reach Team Marie's people, not soldiers. Because the soldiers were going to leave someday, and I wanted to leave a church here. So Ferdy, I say he was Filipino, right? One of those tall Filipinos, about like that. <laughs> and all Filipinos are expert basketball players. You knew that, because they're so tall. And there was a pickup game every night down at the school, underneath the lights, and anybody could go down and play some basketball. So Ferdy went down, took his Filipino expertise, and began to play basketball. He was the smallest guy on the court. Team Marie's, most of them are not large men. But there was a guy down there named Maruby who was six foot tall, Team Marie's. He made his living as a diver. He would scuba, not scuba, snorkel and spear one fish a day. Spear, spear a nice, big, pretty fish. Take it to the UN, they'd give him $10. He was rich. Most guys worked for $1 a day. He was making 10 times more than his neighbor, just because he could hold his breath. So there's this big guy who swims every day. He's really fit and playing basketball. And apparently the rules for basketball are different in Timor than they are in the rest of the world. And the difference is big guys can foul and you can't do anything about it. So Ferdy's down there every night just taking a licking. And coming back and learning names and learning who they are and how it works. And finally one night he's getting his stuff packed up, going to head back home. And Ruby says, can I walk with you? He said, sure. Ruby says, I've been watching you. He said, you're not a very good basketball player. And these guys are rough on you. Why do you keep coming back and playing basketball? You heard the question? Why do you respond to life like you respond to life? What's up with you? You're different. And Ferdy shared the gospel as they're walking to Ferdy's house. And Ruby said, you know, it's the first time I ever heard that, but I need that. I got money. I, I've got a beautiful wife and a beautiful family, but I, I need that. And Maruby came to Christ because Ferdy responded to life, because he lived strategically. God sent me here. He must have something planned. God must intend to use me. My God will not waste me, waste my hours, waste my tears. My God will use me. You get the application, don't you? I could ask you, where are you? Where are you living? With what are you struggling is it going really good for you? You don't know what struggle feels like? Or you say, man, it's hard. But God is good. And I want to respond to life. I want to respond to the struggles, the challenges, in a way that causes people to ask me, why are you doing that? 
Why are you responding in that way? Why are you different? What do you know that I don't know? What do you have that I don't have? Tell me about your heart. Seems different than my heart. It's fun to be here with missionaries like Gopi and Chris. I've got good friends who are missionaries, neat people. It's kind of fun, too, to be around Christians who are strategically located for God to use them, like every one of you. I challenge you, let God use you. Don't be hung up over the fact that this person is less than you, greater than you, richer than you. That's not a big deal at all. As Paul was sent to Philippi by God, He reached a rich person and a jailer with the same identical message. Sin is a problem, and Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. We take the same message to our friends, to our neighbors. We live our lives in front of them, and they ask the question, what do you know? We know one thing. Sin's a problem, and Jesus is the way to be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that someone came to us and told us the truth about Jesus. Father, we thank you for the privilege you've given to us to tell another person about Christ. We ask you to use us, use our lives, our choices, our words. Use us to reach people. We pray in Jesus' name.